Hello, everyone, and welcome to the new episode of the Ball Film Podcast. I'm back here again with Lucy Carter, and we are discussing romance in films. Lucy, how are you? I'm good, thanks. Thank you for having me on the podcast again. It's an absolute pleasure. The Coming of Age Films episode is fantastic. If you haven't heard that, do listen to it. Lucy's very insightful. Now, Lucy, what films have you seen recently? Um, so the most recent film I watched, which I'm hoping to talk about in a bit, was the 2005 version of Pride and Prejudice, which I'll get onto my thoughts on that in a bit. Um, and before that, very excitingly, was my first time in a cinema since um, the pandemic started. So it's been a while and I saw Deer Skin, which was very weird, um, very strange film, but I think I quite liked it. <laughs> Interesting. I haven't heard of Deerskin. It's it's this French film that I think it, it's I know it's new. I'm not sure exactly when it came out, but um, in a, a sort of sentence summary of it is a man who gets a jacket. He becomes so obsessed with the jacket that um, he wants it to be the only jacket in the world. And to do that, uh, to achieve his goal of that, he starts killing people. <laughs> Brilliant. That sounds bizarre. It's very strange. Um, I'd say worth watching. It's also very short. So if you hate it, you haven't wasted too much time. Brilliant. That sounds nicely strange, which is what I like. Now, Pride and Prejudice. I'm assuming this is the, you said the 2005 version. Yeah, the one with Keira Knightley. What did you think of it? Um, it's my second time watching it. Um, and I think it is amazing. I think it's one of... Um, Oh, it's just so great. I can't think of anything I don't like about it, to be honest. Um, that being said, I haven't actually watched any other adaptations of Pride and Prejudice, and I know everyone has their favourites, um, but I know this one's pretty universally loved. Um, yeah, I think it's great on a lot of levels. Obviously, the plot itself, can't give credit to the movie for the plot, but um, the way it's sort of adapted from the book is brilliant um and I think in terms of romance as a genre um it's quite unusual in the sense that although the romance is the main aspect of the film um there aren't many sort of traditional romantic moments throughout it don't know if that makes sense but yeah that's that's the statement I'm gonna make <laughs> Right. Am I right in thinking um, a young Carrie Mulligan's in it? I think so, yes. Yeah, she is. Brilliant. And Matthew McFadden is uh, Mr. Darcy in that version. I think so. I'm so bad at remembering people's names. <laughs> Honestly, the only person whose name I remember in that film is Kira Knightley, but I will take your word for that one. Are you a fan of Jane Austen adaptations in general? Although I'm an English literature student, which means I should have read a lot of Austen, I actually haven't. I'm reading Pride and Prejudice at the moment for the first time, um, which is kind of what made me watch the film again, because it's just so good. Um, and I know that the adaptation of Emma recently was supposed to be very good. And I wanted to see that in the cinemas. And then um, that was exactly when the pandemic started. So I never got a chance to see it on the big screen. Um, but I have had that on my list to watch for a while. Um, I think with Austin in general, I think um, her work really lends itself to adaptations because it's a lot less stuffy than a lot of other sort of 
books of that era or how people perceive them. Um, so with Pride and Prejudice, for example, so much of it is very relatable to a modern audience that I think you don't really feel that disconnect between the huge time difference. Does that make sense? Yeah, I can understand that. I can understand that. There's definitely some very, very good Austin adaptations out there. The two I'd recommend would be the Emma Thompson Sense and Sensibility from the 90s uh, and Mansfield Park, which I think was another 90s one. Those are both very good. I know what you mean about the sort of time gap thing, because even though obviously it is Georgian and we sort of appreciate the way those films look, the lovely sort of period setting, the, the production design, the clothes and so on, it is just, it's romance. I think that's one of the reasons why romance is so sort of powerful and so enduring in cinema is that everyone can kind of relate to it in some way. As long ago as it might be set, there's always going to be some kind of connect between you and the film if it's a romance story, especially if it's a sort of like... Films often toy with sort of unrequited love and loves that can't happen, and then that that's just... It's so easy to manipulate the audience by doing that because I think everyone yeah. has some experience like that somewhere. Yeah, I think that's really true. And sort of throughout watching this um, version of Pride and Prejudice, I feel like all of the characters, you can completely relate to their motivations because you've got um, sort of from the, the main, from the Bennett sisters who are obviously the main characters, you have the ones who are, who are sort of obsessed with the concept of romance and the younger sister who just goes off and gets married and how everyone's kind of horrified by that. And you can kind of think, oh, that's obviously the implications of that are different because of the time that it's set in. But that idea of having sort of wayward relative who's sort of just obsessed with that romance is such a sort of relatable figure I think and with the actual um main romance itself I think it's so well handled because I think it's far more realistic because they don't like each other at all at first and I think first of all that makes it more interesting and also it's it's less that sort of I guess, of course, every romance in film has some sort of conflict in it, but it's got that, um, oh, well, there's not that immediate connection and that immediate, like, oh, they're star-crossed lovers. It's, I think it's just more realistic, which makes it more interesting. Yeah, absolutely. There is that realism there with Austin that I think people look over. Maybe when you think of Austin, you might think, mm -hmm. oh, you know, kind of like, you might think it's a bit sort of, of its time, the word dated people might use, even though that's quite often misused as a term, you might think it's a bit too sort of sweet or saccharine, but there's often, uh, there's a slightly brutal element to some of those stories. Mansfield Park in particular, a lot of that's about the slave trade. Yeah, I think Austin, um, from, as I said, I haven't read lots of her stuff, but I'm familiar with the plot. It's a lot more sort of um, less surface level than a lot of people might assume from a lot of the sort of I guess the general image of her work which yeah I think it um particularly translates into film really well yeah absolutely and again with the time the whole time gap thing clueless which we talked about before yeah is an adaptation of Emma yeah um I think that exactly proves that the point that these stories aren't limited to their time which is just and you can, you can watch a version that's set when the book was written and you can watch a version that's set in the 1990s and both of them are great um, because that story is so adaptable. I think it's, um, yeah, it's, it's just really enjoyable really to see. Absolutely, I totally agree. 
I think there's a lot of joy to be found in romance films. Again, there's a whole discussion about them and sort of gendered stereotypes associated yeah. with them. You, get, you can get two hours talking about that. Uh, the whole we did an episode before with Sophia Stanford on um, films that are often called chick flicks and the sort of stereotypes mm. associated with those. But I have to say, you know, as a as a bloke, I do quite enjoy a lot of romantic films. Now, when you messaged me about this topic, with one of the questions we were talking about was why romance is so prevalent in cinema. Yeah. Um, I was just sort of thinking, and this was actually while I was watching the film I mentioned at the start, Deerskin, um, the two main characters, it's a man and a woman, and the whole way through I was thinking, oh, are they, are they going to put a romance into this? Um, and kind of thinking, oh, I really hope they don't, because it wouldn't fit. And they didn't, which is good. But I think it's quite interesting, and people I've often spoken to after watching the film, you kind of have the expectation that there's going to be a romantic element to the story, even if it isn't the main plot. Um, yeah, and I was just kind of wondering what your thoughts on why that was, because it is so clear in most films there will be at least a romantic subplot or something similar. And yeah, I just thought it was quite strange. I think you're absolutely right. I think it's partly because it's just what we've come to expect through watching films our entire life. There is so often a romantic story, a romantic side to most films that you just kind of expect it to happen. So I think that's one side. In terms of why it's actually there, I mean, I've talked about relatability a little bit. Um, I think there's a couple of other reasons. I think one is that there's so much dramatic potential from a romance story. There's a lot of ways you can take it. You can take it into the sort of unrequited love, forbidden love, love that can't last. Um, one person dies, you know, how many films have you seen where that happens? Uh, yeah. the, the fact that movie stars are, are usually very, very attractive people. So there's, there's already this kind of assumption of romance built around them and their sort of star character and their persona. When it comes to like classic Hollywood, those sort of stars of that age who are so handsome and so glamorous, and people like Burt Lancaster and Deborah Carr, for example, and From Here to Eternity, something like this, they're already so attractive and so sort of beloved by the population that were watching films at that time, that it only makes sense to make romance films with them. Uh, I definitely think there's a gendered aspect too. I think like traditionally romance films in Hollywood were kind of quote unquote films for women. I think that's how they were thought of at the time. And the idea that, well, if you put a romantic subplot into a film that otherwise might not need it, then you can sort of broaden your demographic with the film. That's a, that's a really interesting point actually, sort of just to, to grab more people, just put as much as you can into a plot. Um, yeah, and I think you're right about sort of with the people in films often being conventionally attractive, if everyone in the audience is in love with them, you kind of have to put some sort of romance in there, I guess. Um, yeah, I was just thinking it's because I never really thought about this before and I suddenly thought nearly every film I've seen has got this romantic element in it. And a lot of the time it feels very shoehorned in, um, sort of where they'll just go, oh, we, we can couple those people up because then that creates like a nice little happy ending for them. And well, I guess thinking in a sort of ooh, deeper society way is probably not the best message to be sending to people all the time because um, a lot of the time it's like, okay, the only way you can have a happy conclusion to a film is, or to a story is ending up in a relationship or some sort of romantic success which I don't know it would be nice if there were more films where people just end up 
doing something else, I guess. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. I think there is that kind of need for subversion when it comes to these, these tropes that are so old and so lasting. What's interesting is that even though we might think of romance as being this very traditional Hollywood thing, and of course, in many ways it is, romantic films have existed for as long as cinema has existed. Before a, a thing called the Hayes Code, which was this very conservative sort of censorship code that came into American cinema, I believe in the early 1930s, there were lots of films that were quite explicit when they were dealing with romance, quite subversive. So I'm just looking up here. This is a Wikipedia page. This isn't the most sort of academic thing. But if we look at films from that kind of time, that pre-Hays Code time, films like, say, here we go, Call Her Savage, Our Betters, Footlight Parade, Only Yesterday, Sailor's Luck and Cavalcade. Those are all films with gay romances in them that were coming out in the 30s. That usually subplots usually not the main thing, usually probably horrific stereotypes associated with those kind of portrayals. But still, it's a gay romance in a film in the 30s. That's something mm. to celebrate, I suppose, um, even if it might be done pretty badly in terms of how the, representationals, uh, the representation's handled. So I, th I think that's interesting that maybe there is this subversive element that's always been there that we don't quite think about when we think about pre-code films. Yeah, that's really interesting. And I think it's it's quite sad to think about how even as you said if it wasn't great representations and it was quite stereotypical you had more quote-unquote non-traditional romances happening in film and then it's taken so long for those to be shown again on screen um, and even now obviously there is often discussions about how stereotypical those presentations still are and yeah that's um yeah, it's really sad to think about how long it's taken to even get back to that very low baseline sort of mm. of having that in film. Absolutely. The sort of dominant strain of romantic cinema for many years was the sort of traditional Hollywood romance. So you had films like, say, Casablanca, Gone with the Wind, um, even going into the 50s and 60s, films like The African Queen, Dr. Zhivago, From Here to Eternity, The Sound of Music, uh, British films like Brief Encounter. What these all have in common is it's very complicated and anguished. There's usually a war somewhere in the background. There's yeah. this, they can't quite get together, they're trying, but you know, one of them might die, one of them might be separated from the other. Usually the love can't last. It's all about star power. It's Humphrey Bogart and Ingrid Bergman. It's, it's all about the sort of the personality it's big names, it's anguish, it's passion, it's emotion. Often we quite kind of look at those films now as a bit old fashioned and out of date, but that was the sort of dominant, dominant form of romantic cinema for a very long time was that big, passionate, emotional, there's war, there's carnage, can they get together? That was romance and film for a very long time. Yeah, I think, um, well, actually, as I was saying earlier about sort of everything having to end in romance with um, like Casablanca, I think that that's one where it doesn't end in romance. Oh, oh spoilers! But I mean, it's a spoiler <laughs> film. But um, I think that's that's a. I really enjoy that ending because it's kind of like things don't always work out. And I guess I quite like films that are romances, but it's like, well, things might not be perfect. Um, I guess jumping really far forwards, um, La La Land also ends with sort of a failed relationship and. I think, I don't know, I feel like there's more emotional depth where they end on, I guess, a sadder note, maybe. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. Because a lot of these films, actually, now you mentioned Casablanca, which is like a, 
a very clear good example of that. Brief Encounter, famously, that ends with a breakup. They can't be together. Um, some of these other movies don't. Uh, the African Queen, very happy ending. Dr. Zhivago is miserable. I don't know if you've seen that or not. It's The ending to that is just beyond bleak. So yeah, the, it's interesting that these very traditional films that we might think of as being maybe as you, you know, saccharine or whatever, there's so much darkness in these. They, they, they like those big, bleak, tragic endings. I think maybe because that just gets people so emotionally invested and hooked on it. Yeah, I think, um, I don't know, I feel like we're missing some of that now because a lot of films, um, I guess, later romance films that I sort of see as typical rom-coms, um, I feel like they've got less and less I guess emotionally interesting as time goes on especially with big blockbusters um yeah because I was I've written a small list of films that I really did not like um the romances and I was thinking about like what are the similar threads that tie together why I don't like them um we have to hear the list I have to hear the list the first one is completely an irrational hatred um it's the film The Holiday the reason I don't like The Holiday is because Jude Law is in it and I have a completely irrational dislike of Jude Law. I do not trust him. I think I always think he's going to be a villain. So the whole way through watching this film, I thought he was going to do something evil, um, which slightly ruined the romantic element of it. Um, and I guess kind of points to the importance of casting, although um, that might just be me not liking Jude Law. It's probably good casting, just not for me. But anyway, um, other films I really didn't like. I could not get through The Notebook. I found it so painful to watch. And I know that's supposed to be the, the big romantic film of all time or ever. But yeah, I just found it uninteresting. And also the whole bit at the start where he's like holding on to the Ferris wheel and he's like, if you don't go out with me, I'm going to kill myself. I was like, mm, maybe not the best base for a relationship. Um, then the two others. Love Actually. I cannot stand Love Actually. Yes, I completely agree. It's so bad. It's terrible. Oh, it's terrible. It's genuinely terrible. So I don't know why it's such a classic. And every Christmas I have to see it on the TV again and you're just flipping through the channels and it's like, oh God, it's Love Actually again. And I just, I don't even know if I need to go into why that's an awful film. But um, the last one I didn't like, this is less of a hatred, but um, was You've Got Mail. And um, one of my favourite films ever is When Harry Met Sally. So I kind of assumed I'd like You've Got Mail. And despite the fact that it looks amazing and it makes me want to live in New York and own a bookshop, the, again, the kind of, the ending is just so disappointing because, um, spoilers again, but the couple end up together, but his business has completely destroyed her business. So yep. it's kind of like, well, why is why does she still love him? He has destroyed her livelihood. And you get all these sad montages of her going, wow, I'm losing my mother's bookshop. This is so tragic. Look at all the happy memories I had here. But oh, well. And it just felt a bit, I guess, disingenuous to, to have that ending, despite the fact that a lot of the rest of the film is good and they have great chemistry. But to me the ending just did not make sense but yeah I think those are my the the romance films that I have the most problems with. Oh, this, it's a good list I quite like that because 
the holiday I'm very split on because I think half of the holiday is quite good and half of it is terrible. Um, <laughs> the, the half with Jude Law and Cameron Diaz, once they're in England, I really don't like it. I think mm. that whole, I think that's very love actually, that whole side of it. Yeah. Very saccharine. That whole thing with him looking after his daughters is just a bit too on the nose. And yeah. Whereas I do actually really like all the stuff in America in that film. Um, because if people haven't seen it, the, the plot of the American side is that Kate Winslet starts a relationship with Jack Black. Already I'm invested. <laughs> That's a great odd couple partnership in cinema. Wonderful. I love it. That's, I'm, intri- I'm intrigued to see where their relationship goes. And their plot is that they discover their next door neighbor, played by Eli Wallach, who is um, the ugly in The Good, The Bad and The Ugly. So I'm in. I love Eli Wallach. He's this prolific, legendary Hollywood screenwriter who's kind of been forgotten um, and they kind of, they, they sort of rekindle his memories of his days when he wrote these great films in the forties. And it ends with this really quite moving scene where he gets an award in sort of recognition of his life. I love all that. I just don't like the Jude Law stuff. So I agree with you completely there. Yeah, I completely agree. Cause I thought that side of the plot was really interesting and it was genuinely moving and it had that like emotional depth. But then the side with Jude Law, like you said about, oh, he's looking after his kids. I was just thinking he was going to do something evil the whole time. I could not, I could not believe the romance at all in that one. Yeah, I'm, I'm totally with you. Um, when it comes to Love Actually, I'm really glad you hate it because I do as well. Uh, Richard Curtis made that film and I'm not a big fan of him in general. He made um, The Boat That Rocks, which I do actually quite like. But apart from that, his films really just don't do it for me. Love Actually, I could spend an hour talking about that, but there is a scene in the film that just kind of sums up why I don't like it. It's a scene where Hugh Grant, who I usually actually really like, um, he's brilliant in a TV series called A Very English Scandal. But in in this, there's a scene where he looks at a picture of Margaret Thatcher on a wall and calls her a saucy minx. And I'm like, I'm out. <laughs> I'm out of that. No. Final thing. You've lost me. You've lost me there. You, you've got mail. I must admit, I do quite like it um, because I like Tom Hanks a lot. So like, I just kind yeah. of, I'm in. But you are completely right. The message of that film is really really dark (laughs) yeah because I really enjoyed it up to that point I was like wow it's got that whole oh they don't know who each other are mistaken identity this is so funny like screwball comedy and then the ending just ruins it for me completely yeah I I agree like um like I can I can live with it I guess but there's a really good YouTube video about that film I can't remember the channel but you can find it really easily it's called like you've got mail and fascism because there's a point in that film where I think it's one of the it's one of Meg Ryan's friends or like an older woman who works at the bookshop who talks about the fact that she had a, a relationship with um, Franco, the Spanish fascist dictator, when she was a younger woman. It's just like a random line in the film. It's like, okay, but the the YouTube video points out in the same way that that is about falling in love with a fascist. The ending of the film is kind of similar. <laughs> It's about falling in love with the sort of capitalist that's destroyed your lovely small business. <laughs> that's a really good interpretation. I like that. There's a really good cast in that film, actually. Greg Kinnear is in it, and I love him. Um, Steve Zahn's in it. Dave Chappelle is in it, which is bizarre. Uh, and Heather Burns as well, who's Miss Rhode Island and Miss Congeniality. So, I, I, again, I do quite like that film. Yeah, I think it... I really enjoyed it up until the ending, and I just think it's such a shame because... Um, I mean, one thing I loved is it just looks so nice. It does make me want to move to New York. Um, 
<laughs> I think that's probably the main appeal for me. I can totally see that. I can totally see it. You mentioned screwball comedies, and I think that gets us into an interesting area. Because when I was talking about those like traditional Hollywood romances, The Gone with the Winds and the, the Dr. Chivagos and so on, those films, again, they're not funny. They're all about the sort of the tragic and the romantic. Whereas there's always been this kind of quirky comedic side to romance in Hollywood. Um, and again, the screwball comedy is like a perfect example of this. This is kind of the genesis of it, where you have films like uh, the ones made by Preston Sturgis, like the Palm Beach story, The Lady Eve, which is hilarious. I really recommend The Lady Eve. Barbara Stanwyck is fantastic in that. Um, bringing up Baby, Howard Hawks, uh, what we've got here, His Girl Friday, Ball of Fire. I think those are all Howard Hawks films. So this is the kind of quirky comedic side where it's the sort of, the the sort of the the women that made Zoe Deschanel possible, I, I want to say, um, is Catherine Hepburn, Barbara Stanwyck, people like this, uh, Philadelphia Story around the same time, very funny. That kind of morphs into the quirky romantic comedy side of the fifties, where you have films like Roman Holiday, The Apartment, Breakfast at Tiffany's, um, the kind of romantic comedic elements in musicals like Singing in the Rain. Uh, and then that kind of morphs into the, the 70s, where you have movies like What's Up, Doc? by Peter Bogdanovich, which is kind of a tribute to the screwball comedy. And then you kind of have the first big modern day rom-com, I want to say. Um, obviously, hugely controversial director who I don't like. I want to make that very clear. Woody Allen, who directed Annie Hall and Manhattan. So these are the films that kind of birthed the modern day rom-com. From this, you get all the kind of Wes Anderson stuff, um, even films like kind of Scott Pilgrim, I think, owe a debt to that side of things. So it's interesting that you have these two tributaries. You have the big tragic romantic side and then the sort of quirky rom-com side. Yeah, I thought one of the films you mentioned, actually, I think really sort of takes both of those. And that's Roman Holiday, because yeah, it's very funny. But you also have the huge tragedy of the fact that, you know, it's it's never going to work. And I think, um, yeah, that kind of is a nice point between the two, I think, where you get the best of both worlds. Absolutely, that's a really good point. And again, that's kind of all about celebrity, fame, class. It's got the exotic locations, because obviously it's all in Rome. Uh, the fun fact about that film, the screenplay for it was written by Dalton Trumbo, who was a communist, and he had to write it under a pseudonym because he was blacklisted at the time in Hollywood. And he only got his oh. credit restored to it with the DVD release of the film. Oh, wow, that's really interesting. <laughs> Yeah, uh, there's a film about his life called Trumbo, which I recommend. It's really interesting. Cool. I will definitely check that out. That sounds really interesting. Are you a fan of Roman Holiday? Um, I when I watched it, I have only seen it once. I had quite mixed feelings because I think at the time I watched, I was like, why is the ending sad? It's a romance. Um, but I think that now I appreciate romance films that don't have happy endings much more. Mm -hmm. Um, because I do think they're they end up being more interesting. I think that's just as I've seen more films and more really, truly terrible romantic comedies. I sort of appreciate the more emotional ones more. Yeah, I, I must agree. I think the one, honestly, the, the ones that end with sadness and dejection kind of, I, I don't want to say more realistic because that sounds like I'm kind of incredibly like a pessimistic person, but it, it feels more realistic, you know? It, it feels more real to sort of lived experience, that kind of thing. I, I appreciate that more. When it comes to other kind of tributaries that romance has taken, I thought this was an interesting one. In 60s European cinema, 
films made people like Godard and Antonioni, who I like to bring up all the time because that's my thing. Um, they made films like La Ventura and Contempt and Breathless. These are all films where romance is kind of cynical. It's where the, the characters in the romance kind of know it's destined for failure. And there's always kind of a violent element. Um, for example, Breathless is about a couple where the man is just a kind of a killer and a thief, but it's all very sort of cool and sleek because it's French and it's the 60s. And I think that kind of feeds into the sort of couple in, couple on the run cinema. Um, you have films like Bonnie and Clyde, which is just like a straight up sort of homage to the French New Wave, but it's an American film made in the late 60s. And you have stuff like Badlands and True Romance. So what do you think of this kind of more edgy, cynical, violent side of romance and film? I think that can be quite fun to watch um, because it's just a completely different twist. And I think if you have seen a lot of very saccharine films, it's kind of refreshing to see something that isn't that at all and is the complete opposite. Um, yeah, I think, I think a lot of the time it's about balance, not just within a single film, but sort of across what's available and not sort of having everything run in the same vein of, because I think, again, if it was all that sort of cynical and violent romance, then I'd be saying, oh, it would be much nicer to have a happy ending and things like that. So I think it is just about sort of, it definitely has a place. Um, yeah, I think, yeah. Brilliant. And again, it's a subversion of what you kind of come to expect. So I think it's joyful for that reason. Yeah, definitely. Again, another sort of tributary and another path for romance in films, a dark one, is in noir, film noir. I absolutely love film noir. I've been watching more and more of it recently. Um, I just want to shout out a couple of films here. Out of the Past, Double Indemnity, and The Postman Always Rings Twice. The romance in these films, again, it's more sort of about like sort of lust and steaminess, this kind of side of it. It's, it's, it's very much not what you'd expect from old Hollywood. It's not the sort of, oh, my darling, I do love you kind of stuff that people... I think come to expect from films from the 40s and so on they're often again very bleak very tragic very violent this is kind of what births that sort of cynical french new wave side of things in the 60s um and again it's very interesting for uh, sort of women's rep um, representation because i think when it comes to old school hollywood romances again it's the male who's the sort of dominant figure the woman's very sort of placid and kept at home in these kind of films because obviously they were made in the 30s and 40s it's very very incredibly sexist time um but film noir, again, it kind of subverts that because it's women who have all the power in those films, in a way. Even though you usually follow male leads who are detectives or sort of hopeless sort of saps, the, you know, drifters like in Postman Always Rings Twice or even insurance salesmen like in Double Indemnity, it's the women that are the central driving force of the plot and they always outsmart the detective. The femme fatale is always one step ahead. And it's interesting because it, it's women presented in a sort of overtly sexual way, which was strange for the time. Um, but it is women given more power and more agency and often allowed to murder men. So again, ahead of its time. <laughs> yeah, I think, um, I think I've read a bit more noir than seen it, but I think that's definitely true that oftentimes the women will be presented initially as very weak and sort of, oh, they have to go to this man for help and all of this. But then they're the ones who are actually orchestrating the, that whole thing. And sort of, I guess the weaponization of sexuality there is really interesting in a romantic context. And when you get that twist, it's like, oh, she's actually got the control here. 
I think that is a really interesting subversion. And yeah, particularly for the time where you do have that image of um, sort of the damsel in distress image. I think it's, um, yeah, it's, it's a really interesting twist. And I think it's very enjoyable to watch. Absolutely. I absolutely love noir films. Um, may I ask what like noir you've read? I'm intrigued. Um, I've read a few Raymond Chandler's and nice. I've the names of them, but yeah, quite a few. They're great. The atmosphere is just amazing in all of them, even more than the plot, really. The atmosphere is what really counts. Oh, fantastic. There's some great Raymond Chandler um, film adaptations, like uh, The Big Sleep is a really good one. Yeah. I, I love The Big Sleep. It's so great. And again, I think the atmosphere in that film is just, it's brilliant. It's just so, it really takes you into that world. And again, that's, I, I think again, like I'm using the word subversive a lot, but it's Lauren Bacall in that film who later got married to Humphrey Bogart. But again, all of the mystery, all of the intrigue, all of the plot revolves around her character. It's her withholding information from Bogart. Again, she is in this position of power. We're like Bogart with a detective trying to piece together information, find out what's going on. She's the one with the agency and the control. Yeah, and I think, like you said, that subversion is so interesting because it's not what you expect when you start watching or reading it. I, yeah, I, th I think it's, um, yeah, it's just, it's just really enjoyable to watch because it's just unexpected. Absolutely. Uh, and by the time you get to like the 70s and the 60s, you kind of have the whole neo-noir time, which is very interesting. Again, hugely problematic film just because of who directed it. Um, but Chinatown is a really fantastic 70s movie. Uh, again, it taps into that whole idea of the femme fatale. That film is, that film is kind of about how women are treated terribly in American society. Um, so again, it's in, that's, that's an interesting one. And The Long Goodbye, which is a film I just rave about at any chance I possibly get. I love, 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 love The Long Goodbye. That's fascinating, that movie. Um, I'm not sure. Have you seen it? I haven't. I want to see it now. But... It, it's, it's, a, it's a channel adaptation. Um, but it, it was done in the 70s. So it's this strange sort of stoner noir film where the, the, the romantic aspect in it is almost sort of intentionally left out. There's a femme fatale character in it, but the hero doesn't even make any attempt to kind of romance her. She has all the power and control and he kind of just lets her have it without trying to pursue. It's very interesting, very, very different from other films of its time. So I thought I'd bring those up. I, I wanted to say that Romantic films, I think, are very political. Yeah, I think, I was going to say particularly now, but I think generally they, they always have been, <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. Just in two particular ways, we'll start with the first one that we've already kind of touched upon, and that's heteronormativity. So for years, the kind of, the, what you expect from a romantic film is a heterosexual relationship between a man and a woman. That's obviously been challenged completely just by a few films here I'm going to mention. Um, these sort of LGBT modern classics like Brokeback Mountain, Ammonite, Portrait of a Lady on Fire, God's Own Country, uh, Call Me By Your Name, films like this. Do you think this is like a good beneficial um, sort of development in cinema? Um, I think broadly speaking, yes, absolutely. Because the more different sorts of relationships and different sorts of stories that are being shown on screen, um, if you're, if you see yourself on screen, then obviously that's going to be very important to you. And it shows people that, I guess this sounds really, I don't know if this sounds really patronizing, but like being welcome in the world, that you're being accepted and 
you're seeing yourself like reflected back and if you're not part of um sort of the group being represented it's more interesting than just seeing the same story again and again um yeah and I, I think it's it's really important I think the only well not the only but one of the issues that comes up is that um films with often non-heterosexual leads are more likely to be heavily criticized um and sort of people seem to nitpick a lot more with um films with lgbt uh romances than heterosexual romances which unfortunately i guess is sort of to be expected but um yeah i think it's a shame that there aren't more sort of lgbt romance films out there so that i guess so that people have less to criticize if that makes sense so there's enough that the criticism is more spread out as it is for heterosexual romance films if that kind of makes sense i think that makes absolutely perfect sense and i think you're right i hadn't properly considered that before but i think that's a really strong point another issue i suppose you could say is that there's a lot of films now that are about lesbian relationships that are directed by men which i think is interesting yeah i've seen a lot of sort of discourse about this about how um lesbian relationships on screen are often far more sexualized than any other sort of relationship and it's often very much through the male gaze and I've seen a lot of um lesbians saying that they don't feel represented it's more sort of very stereotypical representations of those relationships which is just I guess when I think about the fact that there are a lot of people out there who are trying to get their screenplays made and those aren't being made but films that are sort of I guess their marketers oh this is a this is a great move for um LGBT representation in film but then you realize that none of the people making it are LGBT I guess it kind of is a bit disingenuous no I definitely see what you mean there I, th- I think it's just if if you are directing a film about a lesbian relationship and you're a, a straight man I, people, I know that people really don't like to bring sort of identity politics and stuff like that into it. That's a lot of the discourse you hear online. Mm. But I, I think there is something to be said about the fact that if, you, if you're directing, a, as I say, if you're directing a, a film about a lesbian relationship and you're a straight man, I think some element of the male gaze is probably going to be there. And I can see why people will go, look, men have directed films for... <laughs> since the birth of cinema, two women directors ever have won the Oscar for Best Director. This is how you know, imbalanced it is in terms of that gender. Just why don't you make more films about lesbian relationships with women directors who can understand that? I, I, I can see, understand the sort of the intricacies and the subtleties of what that might embody. I can see that argument very, very clearly. Um, I know that a lot of criticism was raised about Blue is the Warmest Colour when that came out. Because yeah, that I, has... I see a lot of people just absolutely hating that film. <laughs> Yes, because it's about a lesbian relationship, but it's it's a very explicit film and it was directed by a man. And then I know there were some complaints about the way he treated actresses on set. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it is one step forward, but there are still these concerns that are there very, very clearly about the male gaze, about male directors, about how these films might just be exploitative in a way that isn't truly understanding of what LGBT relationships are about. Yeah, I think... Um it's definitely something that sort of does need to be discussed because I think then it's very easy for people to go, okay, well, there's LGBT representation in film now, so that's done. 
when in fact it's still very surface level I guess um yeah and I think because I've seen so many people saying this is not a very genuine representation for quite a few different films um yeah I guess it needs to be not just the story but the people making the story as well absolutely no I completely agree with you We've talked a little bit there about LGBT romance in films, how that has challenged institutional norms. Another side of this, of course, is interracial romance in films. Um, in early movies, very, and, I'm, and I'm talking properly early movies, 1910s, there's usually an element of exoticization when there were these kind of interracial relationships. Um, there's definitely an Orientalist kind of aspect to this. Films like Broken Blossoms, which in many ways is kind of progressive because it's about... Um, a, a genuinely warm, caring relationship between um, a Chinese man and an English woman. But the Chinese man is, of course, played by a white actor who is in makeup to be, you know, the, there's always this racist element to these films at this time. For, and again, the bitterty of General Yen has similar, uh, similar problems. This continues, this kind of Orientalism and exoticization, even into the 60s um, with Bond films, like You Only Live Twice when he's in Japan and he's in relationships with Japanese women. It was only really in the late 60s where this became really, really progressive when you had films like Guess Who's Coming to Dinner. Um, and then you had films like uh, A Taste of Honey, Ali, Fe uh, Ali Fear Eats the Soul, which is very good, Fassbinder. Um, and then by the time you get to the 90s, when you have movies like The Bodyguard, where it's Whitney Houston and Kevin Costner, no one really cares anymore. It's not, it's not seen as, as political. But in the 60s, this is this big political battle over representation of race in cinema. Yeah, I think it's really interesting. And I think that even now in a lot of films, there tends to be the element of, um, particularly in sort of romantic comedies and romantic films, sort of big blockbusters, a lot of the time you have the lead couple will be white and then there will often be sort of a secondary couple who yeah. is who are um, ethnic minorities. And... I guess sort of the more, because I, as I said, I've watched a lot of terrible romances. That's such a trend that you see that all the time that um, it does really feel like the, the sort of filmmakers going, oh, well, we do have people who aren't white in this, so that's fine, despite the fact that they're making them very stereotypical and not the main characters. And I think there definitely is um, still an avoidance of interracial relationships or if they are included, that will be the main conflict of the film rather than there just being an interracial relationship, I guess. That's a really good point. A lot of films where there is an interracial relationship, you're absolutely right. That is the point of the film. It isn't just that the couple is in an interracial relationship. It's about the struggles they face. And that has just continued. And it, I, I get that point completely. Why can't you just have a film where there's an interracial relationship where it doesn't have to be about the sort of trials and tribulations of life and politics? But yeah, I think that's a very strong point. What's interesting is that, again, if you're talking about subversiveness in romance in films, this kind of traditional quote unquote films for women side, where it's about these kind of anguished relationships, a great director in that genre was Douglas Sirk who made films like All That Heaven Allows, An Imitation of Life. And he was always looking at social issues. Um, All That Heaven Allows is a film about sort of quite a well-to-do middle-class woman who starts an affair with a much younger man, a gardener, um, played by Rock Hudson. And that film is all about how she's kind of ostracized from her community because she's seen as dating sort of below her class. 
So that's a very interesting movie of its time. It's very good. Rock Hudson's an interesting star as well. He was gay. Um, he he was Rock Hudson is kind of a gay icon in a lot of ways. He was the first. I want to say he was the first kind of mainstream person to to die of AIDS. So he yeah. he is a very interesting figure to look at in terms of his life and where he was in cinema at the time. Um, and another movie, Imitation of Life, is absolutely fantastic. I recommend it wholeheartedly. It's a film where you start with this heterosexual relationship between two white people. It's Lana Turner and her boyfriend in the film. And you think, okay, this is what the film's going to be. And then the side plot of the film is that she has a friend who is a black woman who has a daughter who is uh, black but passes as white. That's the plot to the film. And you follow this daughter as she grows up. And it's all about how she deals with racism. She kind of pretends that she isn't black for the longest time. She doesn't want to be seen as black. And then she kind of embraces who she is by the end of the film when she learns to rekindle her relationship with her mother. This came out in the 50s. And it feels very, very, very modern in terms of what it's dealing with, in terms of the politics of that. So I'd heavily recommend Imitation of Life if you haven't seen it. Where you mentioned um, sort of class conflict, that made me think of Dirty Dancing, which um, it's, I remember when I first watched it, I was expecting it to be that very saccharine, um, very traditional romance. And it's so it deals with so many more sort of social issues than I was really expecting. So um, a lot of the main conflict is it's set at this sort of uh, holiday resort and um, the main character falls in love with one of the people working at the resort and there's this whole conflict between the two groups and this holiday camp forms sort of a microcosm of wider society and classes um, which is really interesting and the film also has a very um, important subplot about abortion and the legality of abortion which you really don't expect when you start watching it and I think um, it's quite interesting that film sort of marketed as it's this big romance can actually be far more serious and talk about very important issues rather than just being really sort of squeaky clean and saccharine. Absolutely I think that's a very strong point. It, it, Dirty Dancing is an interesting one because I have to admit I've never seen it but what you see now is more and more and more people saying look this is a really really good film it's heavily, heavily defended online as a movie. So I'm really interested. I really want to see it, actually. It's really great. And um, yeah, I think it is not what you expect because when I went, when I saw it for the first time, I thought, oh, it's just going to be a typical romance, like I said, but it, it really does um, have a lot more depth than you might expect. Brilliant. Well, again, as I say, I'll have to check it out. What I found online is a list by Empire Magazine. They listed what they think are the best ever romantic movies. They did their list here of the top 60 best romantic movies. I thought I'd just read you the top 10, maybe get your take on it. At number 10, they've got Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. This is very much in that kind of jaded, cynical 60s view of relationships that's just kind of morphed into what we have today. At number nine, Jerry Maguire. At number eight, Before Sunset. Number seven, Annie Hall, which we've talked about. Number six, True Romance. Number five, The Princess Bride. Number four, Four Weddings and a Funeral. Number three, Brief Encounter. Number two, Casablanca. And number one, When Harry Met Sally.
Hmm. I have I have some thoughts. I think it's very strange to put four weddings and a funeral that high up on the list because, and it's not because it's a bad film. I absolutely love four weddings and a funeral. I think it's brilliant. It's it's so enjoyable. It's so funny. It's so heartfelt. But I did not care about the romance the whole way through. <laughs> I could not care less. What I really liked was the the friendships between the main characters. I found I cannot I can't remember the name of the female love interest. I cannot remember anything about her. All I remember is the the rest of the plot and the the sort of relationships between um all of the main characters as they go to the four weddings and the funeral um and I think that's far more interesting so I think it's very strange to put that high up on romance rather than I don't know I know it's categorized as a romance but I don't think that's the most important part of the film that's interesting I I, I definitely agree with you I think the most entertaining enjoyable character in that film is uh Kristen Scott Thomas's character I think she's called Fifi like she's the character I really like. Yeah, I think. Um, yeah, I feel like that's that film's just been completely mismarketed because I think if it was sold as a here's a really interesting film about how friendships evolve over time, it'd be like, oh great, that's really interesting. It's a good comedy. It's got heart. But I felt like the romance was completely tangential throughout the whole thing. Yeah, no, I can I can, I can agree with that. I can sympathize with that. You mentioned earlier that When Harry Met Sally is one of your favourites. Are you glad that that's number one? I am very glad that that's number one. I love When Harry Met Sally. I've watched it so many times. Um, last year, after much persuading, I got um, my housemates to watch it with me at uni and they all loved it, obviously, because it's great. Um, and I think that's just a great film. The script is so good. Again, it's set in New York and it does make me want to move to New York. So it's got that going for it. And I think um, the romance in that is genuinely really sweet. And again, you've got that thing of it's not all perfect, which I think is just really, it's really fun to watch because even though because it's a romance, you do assume that they're going to be together by the end. It takes such a long time that the journey is really fun to watch. Um yeah, I just love that film. Fantastic. And I, I really like it as well. I think it's very, very, very funny. I like Billy Crystal. I can watch a lot of films with him in. Again, it kind of has that edgy element because there's that discussion um, right at the beginning of the film that Meg Ryan and Billy Crystal have on that car journey. And the discussion, that's it, it feels quite like blunt and brutal, the kind of things he's saying about men and women in relationships. Yeah, definitely. I think... Um... It's such a good way to open it because it immediately establishes the conflict of the film. But yeah, I think it does sort of start with that very intense discussion. And I guess it kind of, it's kind of a comment on all of the other romance films that you see that it's like, there is no way that these characters can just be friends because otherwise where would the plot conflict be? Um, Yeah, so I quite enjoy that attention is immediately drawn to that um it kind of bypasses the whole setup so yeah I guess it sort of changes a bit the direction of where the film could have gone absolutely what's interesting about that is that Nora Ephron wrote it so it's a rom-com written by a woman which is fantastic 
Nora Ephron is a very, very interesting figure. She directed, um, I believe, uh, or at least wrote um, You've Got Mail. She was married to Bob Woodward of Woodward and Bernstein, who exposed Nixon and Watergate in the 70s. Um, and she, for years and years and years, had figured out who Deep Throat was. He was the contact that gave away a lot of information because she was married to Bob Woodward. She'd figured it out by looking at some of his notes that he'd taken at the time. So if you want to read about that story online, that I just as a complete wow. non-sequitur, that's interesting. <laughs> that sounds really interesting. Wow. That's that's quite a life to lead. Absolutely. I, um, I believe she died a few years ago. So rest in peace, Nora Ephron. Made very, very good films. A couple of other films on this list here. Um, Princess Bride. That's an interesting one. I might not immediately think of that as a romance film, but it absolutely is. Yeah, I think I saw that once and... I could not get invested. And I know that's like sacrilegious to say because it's everyone's favorite film. Um, yeah, I guess that's more of a sort of action and adventure with a romance subplot. So it's quite interesting to put it so high up on the list. Yeah, absolutely. That is interesting. Now you mentioned When Harry Met Sally being one of your favorites. Do you have other favorite romance films that you'd like to mention? Um, hmm. That is one of that probably is right up there near the top um I do really like Pride and Prejudice as I watched yesterday um I know you mentioned earlier bringing up Baby I really I really like that film I thought that was it's been years since I watched it but I remember really enjoying it um and again that's got sort of the humor element to it uh oh I'm trying to think of the names of films that I like I can see them all in my head and I've gone completely blank but um because I went through a phase of watching a lot of really truly terrible romantic comedies like the worst film the worst films ever there was nothing good about them the scripts were bad the plots were bad the acting was bad um I don't know if this strictly counts as a romance it's more a film with a romantic subplot but um Sing Street is one of my favorite films full stop um that has a very sweet romance in it um that doesn't feel really shoehorned in which is nice seeing as I think a lot really are um yeah I think that works really well um I do kind of like a lot of the really bad Netflix original rom-coms because they have no substance and you can just turn your brain off while watching them. Um, I think the first To All the Boys I Loved Before film is good. They get worse after that, but the first one's decent. Um, one film that I have mixed feelings about is About Time. I think oh. that About Time is so good in some aspects. It's so funny and it's, it's like, it's really sad, but there's the very creepy element it's that. so creepy. It's such a creepy it's, film. It's so creepy. I can't think about it too much because if I'm just watching it, I'm like, oh, this is nice. But also there's the whole thought that this guy knows everything about this woman and is just going back in time and knowing more and more things about her. And she keeps meeting him for the first time. So there's such a weird power imbalance there that it's just very questionable. But then... On the other hand, I like the rest of the film outside of the romance again, which I find a lot that um, I will enjoy a film and the romantic part of it is my least favourite part, even if it's billed as a romance. 
um, because I think Bill Nye is great in that film and his relationship with his family is really good. And again, that's got very, that film's got very serious elements to it. But it's just impossible to watch it without thinking, oh my God, this is very creepy. <laughs> no, I completely agree on the sort of creepy side. That film is about a time traveling stalker and I will not be told otherwise. Like, <laughs> honestly, the first time I saw that, I was really shocked. I was like, you can't do this with a film. Like, honestly, I think you could just, if you change the music up a bit, and if you had the film from uh, Rachel McAdams' perspective, that is a horror film. Like, absolutely. Yeah. There's the bit where she meets the guy at this Rupert, the guy at the party that she starts a relationship with, and Donald Gleason goes back in time to like sabotage it so she won't ever meet him. And it's like, that's really messed up, dude. <laughs> yeah. There's so much where he's orchestrating her entire life and she has no idea about it and it's just yeah it's the whole romance element of that romance film is very creepy but I like it apart from that it's like a really messed up Doctor Who episode that film yeah that, that's a good summary Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I did actually once write an article for the bore um called alternative films for Valentine's Day where a few I, I threw out a few recommendations so I'll bring those up again. Um, Contempt, Le Mepris by Jean-Luc Godard, I absolutely love. Very weird, very bitter film about romance that I quite like just because it's very alternative. It's just so pessimistic about any chances for anything good happening. I love it. Um, I'll recommend Punch Drunk Love by Paul Thomas Anderson. Fantastic film about anxiety. Um, I, I, I have an anxiety uh, disorder. I was sort of diagnosed with that when I was a teenager. And I watched Punch Drunk Love not long after that and I thought, and I still stick by it, that is the best depiction of anxiety in any film. Adam Sandler's performance, and it's Adam Sandler. I mean, like how him and this and Uncut Gems, he just proves that he's genuinely fantastic when he's not in a lot of those comedy films he's usually known for. He is so good here. Please, please, please watch Punch Drunk Love if you're listening to this and you haven't seen it. There's a scene where he's at a party. He has, I think, like six older sisters or seven older sisters um, so he's the youngest sibling and that you you can see in this party that they've just bullied him all of his life. That's kind of what he's grown up with. So he's this in this sort of strange emasculated role within his own family. And you just see him just struggling to deal with that. And there's this brilliant, brilliant little bit where he talks to one of his brothers-in-law and he just breaks down in tears talking about how lonely he is. And it's just one of the most affecting things I've ever seen. And it's a romance film. And heavily, and Emily Watson's in it, and I love Emily Watson. She's fantastic in this. So yes, Punch Drunk Love, huge recommendation. It's a great movie. Um, just a few others. Uh, Singing in the Rain. Everyone knows it. Everyone loves it. It's perfect. It's, it can't get better. Philadelphia Story, absolutely incredible. I love the Philadelphia Story. Um, and if I'm just going to throw a few like rom coms out there that I really like, uh, Miss Congeniality and Legally Blonde, I think are really entertaining. Oh, Legally Blonde is brilliant and I think that's another one where it has a lot of um bigger issues rather than just the central romantic conflict I think that's great um I just remembered a truly dreadful film I watched so after that really good list I'm going to bring it back down to the, the real trash level um it's the film Falling in Love and in is spelled I-N-N because let me just read you the summary of this oh, oh god no. exec wins a New Zealand inn she ditches city life to remodel and flip the rustic property with help from a handsome contractor. <laughs> this film, um, it it really has it all. It has it all. It has a terrible script. 
terrible <laughs> acting, bad sets, really bad background characters. It's perfect. I, I would recommend that film to anyone watching. I'm pretty sure it's on Netflix. Yeah, that's that's my my recommendation for for the day. <laughs> that that film, just from your description, does sound pretty terrible. There is such a weird trend in rom-coms of like she's a successful woman living in the city. Yeah, like, I think again, actually, if you think about that for too long, it's a bit insidious too, because it's like successful woman gives up everything to move to small town and <laughs> meet man. And it's like, uh, well, could she have not done that in the city? And it's always like her job's awful. She shouldn't have a job. And I guess if you think about that for a while, it's like why are they obsessed with these women leaving their powerful jobs to, to go to a small town? Very strange. Yeah, no, I completely agree with you. I mean, like, the holiday is kind of different, I guess, but just because we talked about it earlier. I, I know people like bring up little plot holes and sort of nitpick flaws with films is kind of annoying. But the one that really gets me about um, the holiday is that Kate Winslet has this beautiful rustic cottage within driving distance of a job in London. And it's like, that house is worth millions. You're, <laughs> you're absolutely made with that house. I don't know why you're upset. Yeah, I remember thinking that. It's like, she lives in this idyllic village and she's like, wow, my life's so hard. <laughs> <laughs> absolutely. Now, we've been talking for, I think, a little over an hour. Um, so just to wrap things up, do you have any social media accounts, anything you're working on that you'd like to shout out? Um, I write for The Bore a lot. If anyone wants to read my articles, uh, please do. Um, and also on my Twitter, I say stupid things and occasionally reblog uh, pictures of animals. So um, my Twitter is Lucy LL Carter, if anyone wants to follow me. <laughs> fantastic uh, as always i'm frank evans you can find me on twitter at frank evans um i'm also the editor of bore film so please do follow the bore film twitter uh, there'll be updates about podcasts articles that have been written all this kind of good stuff you can follow us on instagram as well at bore film um thank you so much for listening to this episode lucy it's been an absolute pleasure thank you for coming on thank you for having me brilliant Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the podcast. We should have another episode at this time next week. Thank you again and goodbye.